Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Pentateuch. Today we are talking about the back half of Numbers, and man, did I promise that this was going to be an interesting book, or what? Um, I feel like it definitely pays off here in the back half, um, as much as, you know, the front half has plenty of things to talk about and plenty of things to discuss. Um, but at the same time, I want to kind of revisit the theme that we discussed last time, specifically this idea that Numbers is really, at the end of the day, a discussion of uh, the relationship between God and his people, between the Israelites and their God. Um, and this is kind of tricky to parse here in the back half of Numbers, where the front half makes it kind of very obvious um, that this is supposed to be about the relationship between the Israelites and, and God, their, their father, their God. Um, here we get a kind of complicated structure for the back half of Numbers. Um, specifically, we have a number of different passages which are narrative passages, stories of things that happen to the Israelites as they are wandering through the desert, many of which have major implications going forward, and many of which have significant theological implications as well. Um, but these passages tend to be broken up with policies. Uh, God stopping everything to deliver new rules or like a new uh, issue that has come up that requires God's attention. Um, and we have seen this before. Like at the very end of Numbers 15, uh, with the stoning of the Sabbath breaker, we see, okay, they stone the Sabbath breaker and then God delivers immediately this new policy. We're all going to wear this, this prayer shawl with the fringe. Um, and this will be a reminder to us that we are supposed to be devoted to God even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us. And we see this kind of structure repeated here. Like, it's not a strict repetition. It's, it's not like a, a strict rule for the back half of Numbers. Um, it is much more fast and loose than that. But broadly speaking, we are seeing the Israelites do something something good or something bad, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, we still have quite a few growing pains to, to deal with before the Israelites are out of the woods. Um, but when the Israelites especially do good things, God rewards them with presumably more policies, more rules, more law. Um, we've talked about this before, the idea that the law of God is in fact a gift to his people. It, it is more than just you know, rules for holiness or, or, you know, a guide for what, how the Israelites should be punished. This really is sort of God giving them more of himself in some way, uh, as curious and as complicated and as vague as that may seem. Um, but the real sort of discussion that I want to have here is I just kind of want to walk through all the stuff that is happening because there are so many different stories, so many different passages that are interesting about the Israelites and their relationship to God. Um, so I just kind of want to take them one at a time and, and look at what each one is, has to say to us before we turn our attention to the policies and the new rules and the sort of new issues that arise. Um, so as much as the format does seem to be story, policy, story, policy, I am going to break them up between the two, just because it, the obvious connection, or if there is a connection between the two, it, it doesn't seem especially obvious to me. Um, but again, we're kind of like doing this by the seat of my pants since it's grading season and things are getting a little stressful uh, on the, the uh, class front, um, even though it is Thanksgiving break over here. Uh, at any rate... Let's start with the Rebellion of Korah. 
This is a huge one. Um, as much as, like, obviously the Israelites took a huge stumble and fall when they were on the borders of the Holy Land and refused to go in. Like, the spies reported that, oh no, they're big and strong and we don't want to fight them. And the Israelites got suddenly very cowardly, forgetting that God was supposed to be protecting them. Forgetting, you know, their role in the whole created order here and all the blessings and all the gifts that God has given them. And I don't want to understate that. Like, obviously, it is a huge deal that they fail to go into the Holy Land, that, you know, they stop at the very edge. And obviously, they get some heavy-duty punishments as a consequence. Like, we now have the rule in place where literally everyone, all of the, uh, like, current generation of Israelites will die. None of them will see the Holy Land, except for the obvious exceptions of, like, Caleb and Joshua, who were the only people who were still you know, pro going into the Holy Land at this point. And, at least in theory, Moses, though that will obviously change by the end of the passage that we're reading for today. Um, but right in the middle of this, right after we get the, the stabbing of the, or the stoning of the Sabbath breaker, not the stabbing of the stone at the breaker, good grief. Um, but yes, the stoning of the Sabbath breaker and, you know, the, the just sort of rebellion of the entire kingdom of Israel and refusing to go to the Promised Land, right after this, we get more infighting. Um, specifically, the Sons of Korah, one of the groups of the Levites, which I sort of flagged before when we talked about them in the genealogy last time. Uh, the Sons of Korah decide that they're not going to listen to Moses anymore. They don't have any good evidence, according to them, that it is Moses and Aaron that have been chosen by God. Um, basically, their argument is, you know, it could be any of us. And notice that this is the argument they're making. Like, the petition that the sons of Korah present is, we should also be prophets. We can also be the direct contact between the Israelites and God. And to some degree, Moses encourages this. Like, it's an interesting development here. On the one hand, clearly this is rebellion. Like, Korah is legitimately rebellious like rejecting the structure that God has put in place here. But notice that basically Moses is like, okay, you want to pray to God? You want to be the, the first point of contact between God and the Israelites? Take your censors, take the, the, you know, tools of the Levites and petition God and see how he responds. Um, like, notice mo what Moses actually says here, verse uh, verse 8 of chapter 16. I pray you, ye sons of Levi, seems, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand be before the congregation to minister unto them. And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also. For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that ye murmur against him like notice that on some level it seems like Moses is kind of just annoyed by the whole thing like oh you really want to be in my position like to some degree I have to wonder if Moses is like yeah take it by all means I don't want it like obviously Moses has been struggling with the people of Israel this entire time. There have been multiple times that he's like gone to God and said, you know, can't you raise up literally anyone else? Like literally the first thing that Moses says to God when they first interact with the burning bush is, why me? Like, why would you pick me? I am incompetent to the job. I don't want this job. And we've seen since the book of Numbers you know, when all the Israelites rebel against God, Moses' response is, 
you know, obviously you've got to stick with them, but can you take me out of the equation? Like, could you just stop, like, requiring me to be your go-between? So for the sons of Korah to stand up and say, hey, we want to be the go-between, Moses is like, sure, by all means. Like, if God wants you to take that position, then take it. Like, notice that emphasis. Do you think it's a small thing that God has chosen you know, Aaron has chosen Moses, that he's separated you from the congregation. Like, do you really think that this job is so desirable, so easy, so, you know, powerful that you really want it for yourself? Um, so Moses tells them, take your censors, go out and see if God, you know, favors you. And at the same time, he's telling all of his allies, he's telling Aaron and the rest of the obedient children of Israel, like, step back, this is gonna get ugly. And it does. Like, God opens up the earth, and it swallows the sons of Korah, everyone who has allied with the, these people, basically whole. Like, they're all just sucked into the earth, basically. Um, as miracles go, this is a pretty impressive one, even if it is pretty destructive. Um, like, so... On the one hand, you kind of have to wonder, like, what is Moses' stance here? The frustration he must feel at these people trying to usurp his position, a position that both he does not want and also he recognizes only he can fulfill, must be palpable. Like, Moses cannot be happy about this situation, cannot put up with this stuff. Um, and notice that we immediately follow this up with a sort of reaffirmation of who is God's people. Um, who, who, what is the mechanism by which God communicates with his people? Like, following up on the sons of Korah and them getting devoured, the Israelites are not satisfied, apparently. Like, they still want some kind of proof that it is Moses and Aaron who bear the authority here. So now we have the, the issue of the rods. Like, everybody who wants Aaron's job presents a rod, and then, the, like, God makes Aaron's rod bloom. Like... Think about this for a moment, because it's really downplayed in the text. All of this is downplayed in the text. But you literally have all of these sticks that these people are carrying forward, and, you know, it's kind of like, a, okay, let's see which one of these God chooses. And the one that, the rod that Aaron brings up literally blooms. Like, it grows. It, it sprouts flowers. Um, despite not being connected to anything. Despite not being in the ground anymore. Like, this is kind of a really interesting miracle as they go. Like, on the one hand, it's very typical of everything we've seen before. You know, just as we saw, like, the miraculous birth of Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, with, you know, Sarah was, it was, it had ceased with her after the manner of women. Like, she was not able to produce children anymore. And then God miraculously enables her to produce a child. Here we have basically the same thing only in the plant world. Like, here is a plant that has been severed from its source. There is no reason to think it would grow. Like, this is a rod. It's been trimmed. It's been cut. Like, it's probably been in Aaron's possession for a long time at this point. Um, there is no indication that it would ever be alive again. And yet, God makes it give birth to seeds. Um, it blooms. It flowers. It's also worth noting that this is one of many items that ultimately gets dropped into the Ark of the Covenant. Um, like, we get little notes here and there throughout Numbers anytime that there is some concrete evidence of, of God, you know, doing something impressive. This is stored. 
Like, the Ark of the Covenant, as much as it is, you know, symbolic of God's own presence among his people, it is worthwhile to notice that every time that God does leave some kind of evidence, some significant reminder of his presence among the Israelites, this gets stashed in the Ark. So, obviously, this starts with the tablets on which are written the Ten Commandments. Like, the, I believe it's the second draft, not the, the first ones that Moses broke. Um, but also, we get the flowering rod. This goes in the Ark of the Covenant as well, again, as, like, concrete reminder, but also not because it's sealed away and you're not allowed to, you know, interact with the Ark of the Covenant. Like, the only time anyone's allowed in the Holiest of Holies is during the Day of Atonement, which, again, we'll get to. Um, but also like later when we get the, the rod that Aaron holds or the rod that Moses holds up with the serpent on it, I'm pretty sure that ends up in the Ark of the Covenant as well. Um, so all that to say, like God is kind of building a library of his exploits here. Um, curious as that may be to say, uh, beyond the, the business of, of Aaron's rod and such, notice that we do get the policy that, that is sort of like that follows this entire story. Um, the policy is notably about the Levites and the priests and how they should conduct themselves, um, how the offering should be or collected and conducted, um, as well as how to like go about purifying people who have become unclean for one reason or another. Like Notice that with the affirmation of Aaron's authority as basically the head of the priests, the head of the Levites, the high priest himself, we get laws and ordinances that go along with the priesthood. Like here, the connection seems to be fairly obvious. On the one hand, some of this stuff seems to be repetition. Like the the duties of the priests, I want to say most of this was covered in Leviticus or elsewhere, though I did not make a like deep study of which passage that might be referring to. Um, what is noteworthy, though, is that, again, we get this connection. Here is the thing that happens first that undermines the authority of the priesthood, but then that reaffirms the authority of the priesthood with God's miraculous budding of the rod. And now that we have reaffirmed the authority of the priesthood, we go back and we talk about, okay, what are their duties? What are their responsibilities? How do they maintain their authority as priests? Um, so again, it's not always this clear, but notice that there are connections between the things that happen and the policies that God sort of ordains or provides. Um, but this brings us to a complicated issue in the text. Um, namely, the next sort of thing that happens on our, you know, whistle-stop trip of the wilderness is we have yet another, the people are getting cranky and they need water or they want food or something situation. Um, and this passage does has a, have a very clear parallel in Exodus. Like, you'll remember in Exodus we have that moment where the Israelites are crying out like, oh no, we don't have water. Why would anyone bring us out here? It was better when we were slaves. And God tells Moses, like, take your staff and strike the rock and water will come out of the rock. And, you know, that'll be, you know, keep the, the Israelites happy. Notice that we get a setup that is very similar here, but different in very crucial and important ways. Um, so we have no water again and everybody cries out and they're whining about it. Like, oh, why would God let us die like this? Um, and Moses notice gets instructions from God. 
Specifically, uh, chapter 20, verse 8, Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. But notice the way it actually plays out. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. But notice, there are two problems with this. Like, Moses has, in fact, done the thing that he did before. And you kind of have to imagine that this is not the first, heck, not the second time this has happened. Like, as much as Numbers is a record of many of the things that are going on in the wilderness, you do get the sense that there's a lot that's been glossed over here. Um, that really, this is only significant to us because of the way it goes wrong, and therefore any number of times that it went right was not commented upon. So, as much as, you know... We get the story of manna from heaven as, like, the first occasion of this occurring, even though we assume that manna has been, you know, consistently appearing every morning since. Um, except for, of course, on the Sabbath when, you know, like, God specifically told them, like, get twice as much the night before and don't pick it up on the Sabbath, because um, there won't be any on the Sabbath. Um, as much as we can assume that that's been going on, we can also probably assume that the ish the episode with the quail, like, where God's like, I'll make them choke on the quail, and, like, they're literally swimming in the things by the time that all of the quail have, like, shown up, we can probably guess that both the quail situation and the water situation has happened repeatedly since they first embarked out in the wilderness, since we first heard about it in the book of Exodus. Presumably there have been other times that the Israelites have run out of water, and chances are the same pattern has occurred, where Moses gets instructions from God, he'll like strike a rock with his staff and consequently water will come out. At the very least, we get the sense that Moses is performing this almost by rote at this point. But importantly, God is testing Moses here. Notice that he isn't supposed to strike the rock this time, even though that was the way it worked the first time around. What we get instead is Moses is instructed to speak to the rock, and it will give forth water. And instead, Moses strikes the rock, and it gives forth water. Now, on the one hand, you might ask the question, well, why does God let the rock give water at all? And clearly, like... Obviously, the goal is to produce water somehow. I guess whatever, you know, forces or powers God has given to Moses are, in fact, some in some way efficacious. Um, or, you know, maybe this is an alternative approach to producing water from rocks. I don't know. I am not familiar with the metaphysics underlying this. And again, the text isn't really telling us. But at the very least, what we see is that Moses isn't following God's instructions. He is, in fact, striking the rock when he is supposed to speak the rock. God has thrown a curveball at Moses, and Moses has failed to hit it. But more importantly, notice what Moses says here. He starts with that line about, Here now, ye rebels. And this is honestly pretty warranted. The Israelites are once again, like, 
really upset about not having water. They completely forget all the things that God has done for them. They're literally saying the same stuff they've said over and over and over again. Namely, you know, why do we have to die out here? You know, I thought God was supposed to protect us. Or, you know, why did you bother to bring us out of Egypt? Like, all of the, the you know, greatest hits of Israelite whining is, is very much present here. But then Moses follows up, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And the idea that we are dealing with we is a problem. Like Moses is, is saying we here as though Moses and Aaron are the ones producing water from the rock. They are not pointing to God, which is what they're supposed to be doing. Like this is the way that this works. God is the one making the water come out of the rock, not Moses. Or at the very least, if Moses is to some degree responsible because it's his power, whatever, his proficiency that is producing this, it is still a God-given power or proficiency. He is supposed to point to God first. And the Israelites' rebellion is less a matter of them rebelling against Moses, we literally dealt with that a moment before, and their rebellion against God. So notice that God is testing Moses, he's throwing him this curveball, and Moses both fails to hit it, like, fails to notice that God has, you know, asked him to do something different than seems to usually be the policy here, but also that Moses takes the responsibility on himself, identifies himself as the one who is producing the water, doing, leading the Israelites, not God. Moses has committed an act, however subtle, of hubris here. He has put himself in God's place. He has forgotten that he is the minister of God, the person who is the go-between between God and the Israelites, and thought for a moment that he was the one leading the Israelites, when that's not true. And notice that he gets a pretty heavy punishment for this. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Notice, this means that Moses and Aaron are both going to die before we hit Israel, before we return to the Jordan River, before we actually do go into the Holy Land. This is where Moses and Aaron become disqualified. Um, like, up until now, it seems to be the case that Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua are all exempt from, you know, the, the huge punishment where the entire generation of Israel has to be, you know, wiped out before anyone's allowed to go into the Holy Land. Here we see they are now no longer exempt from that command. Since they forgot God, since they did not honor God when they were supposed to, since they are also in some ways guilty of rebellion, claiming God's power as their own, they too get rejected from the Holy Land. And on the one hand, this kind of seems unfair. Like, I admit, this seems a little harsh. But this is, at least from God's perspective, appropriate. If they're not going to honor him, if they're going to make these mistakes, if they're going to claim to be the saviors of Israel like they do here, then yeah, they've messed up their, you know, they've failed to, failed to acknowledge that this is in fact a blessing, that this is in fact God's grace that is bringing them into the Holy Land, not their own aptitude or their own deserts. Remember, from the very beginning of our discussion of the Pentateuch with Abraham and him, you know, not being righteous, but his faith counting as righteousness. If faith is the operative term here, if faith is the operative thing that gets, that gives you, you know, 
honor in the eyes of God, if this is justification, as the Christians might say, then what Moses and Aaron have done here is a huge lack of faith. They have become unjustified in some way. They've forgotten rule number one when it comes to dealing with God, that you have no other gods before him, that you do in fact respect him and have faith in him, that you remember that he is the one who is giving you all of these blessings, who is showing you all of this mercy, who is, is performing all of these incredible deeds. Moses and Aaron, they let that slip. And you cannot afford to let that slip. In the same way that strange fire ends up consuming the sons of Aaron in Leviticus, so here, failing to properly respect God and properly understand your place before him gets you kicked out of the promised land. Um, so Moses is out, and things aren't looking great here. Like, on the one hand, notice that we aren't getting something on the order of the, the giant rebellion that gets the huge punishment as a result. But things aren't great either. Like, these are smaller scale level screw-ups on the part of Moses, on the part of Aaron and elsewhere, um, even on the part of the sons of Korah. But they do have significant consequences for the people involved. Um, our next sort of adventure, or lack of adventure, is going to Edom. And the Edomites refusing passage to the Israelites, like apparently we are passing our way through the wilderness, making or roundabout making our way back to the promised land, the holy land. Um, and at this point we run into Edom. And notice, we've been told who these people are. Like, this is the people of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau way back in Genesis and how it's emphasized that, like, Esau gives birth to the Edomites and the Edomites are, like, Esau's people? Notice that, once again, the brothers have been reunited. But where Jacob did, in fact, get welcomed by Esau after all of the gifts that Jacob sent, here Esau's people have been sundered from the Israelites for literally hundreds of years at this point, in all likelihood. Like, I'm, uh, I don't remember exactly how many generations we've dealt with between Moses and, and, Is and Jacob slash Israel, but at the very least, it's been long enough, and the Edomites no longer respect the Israelites. So when the Israelites ask for passage, and they do so pretty generously, they're like, hey, we'll just stay on the king's highway, we're not going to make any trouble, we're not going to, you know, like, fight you guys. The Edomites are just like, no, just flat out no, and we will fight you if you come in. So the Israelites do, in fact, have to go around. Um, I'm not entirely sure what the significance of this passage is. Um, like, I don't see any sort of connection to Jacob and Esau or any clear indication of God, like, punishing the Israelites in this situation. If anything, I think this just goes back to the relationship between, you know, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, Isaac and Esau. Like, if anything, I suspect this is one of those, see, this is what happens because of the decisions we've made deep in the past. Um, if anything, we might want to read this one backwards. Like, Moses is probably aware of, you know, the, the lineage of the Edomites. Like, he is keenly aware of the fact that the Edomites refuse them passage here. So he writes Genesis or, you know, records the oral tradition recorded in Genesis with this episode in mind. I suspect this is one of those cases where, you know, we see this tiny little passage here in Numbers that seems to have very little significance for the overall plot. But from a different perspective, from a historical perspective, for the Israelites who were really hoping that their brothers, the Edomites, would recognize them and, you know, be friendly with them, this is a big letdown. 
um, this is a huge disappointment. And Moses is probably telling us the story of Jacob and Esau to remind us, first, on the one hand, this is why we are blessed, but also this is why we are not friends. Um, it is warranted that Jacob is worried about his reception with Esau, just as the Israelites are warranted in being blocked by the Edomites. Um, beyond that, we also you should also notice that this is the passage that gives us the death of Aaron. Like, yes, we get the water from the rock, and we get sort of Moses blocked from entering the promised land, but notice that for Aaron, this is pretty immediate. Like, again, it's real hard to follow the, the chronology here. Like, we do, in fact, get a passage at the end of Numbers where, like, Moses recounts, okay, here are all of the places that we camped, and then, you know, we went from this place to that place and that place to that place and so on and so forth. Like, there is apparently a fairly clear history, and even though it isn't connected to a chronology, um... But at least what we should notice about the book of Numbers, especially here in the back half, um, but also like the entire book from the first uh, from the first census on, is that there's a lot of time passing as this is going on. Like, remember, the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years as a consequence of the, the you know, screw-up when they failed to cross the Jordan River, failed to take the Promised Land for themselves. So that means that basically from Numbers, say, 13 to the end of this book, or not even the end of this book, till the second census, um, which is like, where is that? That's like uh, chapter 26 or so, I think. Um, we're, there's 40 years there. Like, over the 13 chapters we're reading here, we're recording essentially 40 years of time, in all likelihood. Um, so again, time is passing, and much faster than the text would lead on. This is definitely a greatest hits or, you know, most significant events of these 40 years, not necessarily a faithful blow-by-blow -blow account. Um, it is history in the sense that it is all the high marks of history, but not history in the sense of a, you know, carefully timed chronology of everything that has happened with the appropriate, like, earmarks for when time has passed. Um, we did get the first Passover celebration after leaving Sinai, which is kind of a big deal and a pretty good indicator of, of time's passage. But that was a while ago, and we don't get similar indications going forward. Um, we don't get similar like similar marks of, of you know, as time passes here. Um, then we get another episode of, of trouble, um, specifically the business with the serpents. Um, and notice that this is pretty tame as Israelite screw-ups go. Um, verse 2 of chapter 21, And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, um, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. So yay, like the Israelites are figuring it out. They're petitioning God for help as they, you know, are defeating their way through the, the, uh, through the wilderness. And this is one of several occasions where the Israelites are aided by God and sort of beating people up. Um, we'll talk about some of the others in a moment. Um, but as soon as they, like, successfully destroy these people, verse 4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. So here we are, like, we've been forced to go around Edom because the Edomites refused to let the Israelites have passage, and it's frustrating. Like, it's a much longer trip than it needed to be. Why do we have to do it this way? 
And the Israelites start complaining. Verse 5, the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought up brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and your soul loatheth this light, loatheth, loatheth. Oh my gosh, the King James. This light bread. Notice we get the usual marks here. Like once again, it's, uh, why can't we get better food? Uh, why can't we get water? Like once again, we are complaining, why did you bring us out of Egypt in the first place? And apparently, like, as much as there isn't any specific request here, like the Israelites don't immediately demand bread and water or quail or, you know, any of the usual things that they ask for in these situations. Notice that God is still really annoyed about this. Like, this is their fault every step of the way. They've got food. They even acknowledge that they have food. They're just sick and tired of it, apparently. Like, we're, we're done with manna, I guess. Um, but nonetheless, like, they've got all the animals with them. Presumably, they, you know, they, they've been feeding them. It's not like they're starving here. Um, and what's more, you know, they've had water. The only reason why they're taking this roundabout route is because of the way that they've screwed up in the past anyhow. Again, Jace, Jacob and Esau. So apparently this is the last straw for God, and God unleashes a straight-up plague on them. Um, now, the plague is kind of ambiguous. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, against the pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord says, like, make make a fiery serpent, stick it on a pole, and, you know, everyone who looks at the pole, they become saved from the plague. And hooray, everything is good again. But notice that this pattern, this cycle... This complaining and then affliction and then salvation is kind of repeated over and over and over again. Has been repeated since Exodus. Will continue to be repeated well, well beyond the borders of the Pentateuch and into Joshua, Judges, and beyond. This is kind of the default setting for God's relationship with his people. Like, as much as I'm stressing that this is, you know, growing pains, there are there's warrant to the Israelites' arguments. Again, time is passing. This is a city's worth of people traveling over the course of many years through a desolate waste of land. And yeah, like as much as they have in fact seen God in action, they are tired. They are annoyed. They are frustrated. And that frustration is to some degree warranted. But at the same time, it isn't fair to blame God for this. And that's what God has to teach them over and over and over again. That God is protecting them. That God is, in fact, blessing them. That this is, in fact, all part of the plan. And the fact that they are in this situation is a hundred times their fault. They could be in the promised land right now, but they refuse to go in. They could have made peace with Edom, but their, their you know, patriarch, their forefathers, you know, had bad blood with them. This is the consequence. And you have no grounds to truly complain. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, you're not happy with the food. Yes, you've been eating the same stuff over and over and again, but be happy with what you've got is kind of the emphasis here. So God afflicts them and God saves them from their affliction. And like with the sons of Korah, where everybody sort of like rises up even after the sons of Korah are devoured and the plague starts sweeping through the camp, Moses is sort of the figurehead position to help these people out. But at the same time, notice it's not going to save them. 
Like, as much as God saves them from this particular plague, as much as God afflicts them with this particular plague, and we might have questions about, you know, is it fair? They were just complaining. Like, why does God do it this way? Notice that God is at the same time fulfilling his promise. He is wiping out the old generation. This is what, what that looks like. Like, as much as this doesn't seem like a terribly pleasant way to go, they are going to have to go. Like, until they do, the Israelites are stuck, running in place forever. So God wiping out the, the Israelites, as much as this seems cruel or unfair in certain circumstances, it is what needs to happen. It is the end result of all of the accumulated bad things that the Israelites have done. Their faithlessness is appropriately punished this way. And honestly, at this point, it's this elder generation that is holding the younger generation back. The faster they die out, the better it will be for the people of Israel in a lot of ways. Now that said, notice that again, as much as like the Israelites are complaining, it isn't warranted. Immediately we're told about the defeat of Sion and Og. Even the, the whole serpent of brass issue comes right on the heels of them actually conquering the the. The, the like people that they are running into in Horma. Like God is clearly protecting them. God is taking care of them. God is doing everything that God has said that he would do. And they are still complaining. They are still whining. They are still failing to appreciate it. And one of the things that I find most interesting about this is that the next section with Balak and Balaam, um, the sort of like outsiders and suddenly we get this very different or distinct shift in perspective from chapters 22 to 25 uh, where God is looking at like the Israelites from the outside. It's noteworthy that this entire episode, as much as it is recorded to us by Moses, presumably because Moses picks up on it when in fact the Israelites come into Midian and he's told about this, presumably by someone like Balaam himself. Um, notice that Moses is noticing that the Israelites are in fact being protected, even when they aren't aware of it. Like, yes, presumably the Israelites should know better than to complain to God on the heels of a victory that God has granted them. Or presumably they should know better than to complain to God after watching the sons of Korah get miraculously eaten by the earth. All of this would be fairly warranted. But notice that Moses is also tracking that God is protecting them in ways that they're not even aware of. That not only are the Israelites ungrateful for the things that they have witnessed and seen firsthand, but they are not aware of the fact that God is doing even greater things for them behind the scenes. Like, the entire discussion with Balak and Balaam, which is just fascinating, I think. It's one of my favorite passages in this entire book. But notice that Balaam tries to curse the Israelites multiple times. Like, first, Balak is like, hey, I need you to curse the Israelites, and Balaam is like, at home and God literally comes to Balaam and says, you can't curse them. So Balaam is like, well, I guess I'm not getting out of bed today. And Balak is like, dude, why didn't you come and curse them? Like I asked. And he's, and Balaam is like, well, God told me that I can't curse them. So I stayed in bed today. Like literally we get this episode. First, Balak refuses to come out at all. Then finally Balak convinces him like, okay, so we're just going to like curse the the, the side of them like we're going to just utter curses and it's going to be unrelated to the Israelites so you don't actually have to like curse them and Balak's like okay um, or Balaam is like okay I guess we can work with this and then like this angel blocks him and it takes Balaam's donkey his ass turning around and be like Balaam there's an angel in the way and I'm not going anywhere like I would rather run into this wall than face the angel and Balaam is like oh 
Well, in that case, I guess we're not going today. Like, better go home then. And once again, Balaam is sort of like blocked by God. God is literally protecting the Israelites here. Finally, Balak is like, okay, so we're going to like not even look at the Israelites. Like, you're going to look in a completely different direction, and then you're just going to utter curses, and hopefully, like, the blast radius will hit the Israelites. And Balak finally comes up to the mountain successfully, and he, or Balaam finally comes up to the mountain successfully, goes before Balak, and he's trying to utter the curses, and they are literally coming out blessings. Like, he's like, I'm trying to curse them, man. I really am. But it's just, every time I do, like, I'm thinking curse, 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 and it just comes out bless, bless, bless. And God literally uses Balaam's curses to bless the Israelites. Like, this is the solution. Balak is sitting there tearing his hair out. Like, why can't we curse these people? Why can't we destroy them? Like, they're trespassing in our land. I don't want to fight them. Like, I want to use whatever tools we have. And Balaam is like, dude, I got to do what God tells me to do. And on the one hand, we should note, like, this is God protecting the Israelites again. But on the other hand, we should also note that God is active in more places than just Israel. Like, we've seen a couple of times here, like with the order of Melchizedek, when, when Abraham runs into the priest of God, who, you know, is unrelated to Abraham. Clearly, God's sort of presence and significance is still powerful, even without the Israelites' influence. Like, God is still worshipped. God is still respected. God is still powerful outside of the Israelites' sort of sphere of influence. Balaam clearly is a priest of God in some respect, to the point that it, he is drawing on God for his power. And as much as you might argue, like, maybe he doesn't realize it's God, or maybe this is, in fact, pagan power, like, on some level, the more logical interpretation here is that God has enclaves. There are other God worshippers out there. And for all the times that God has threatened to, like, knock out the Jews altogether, like, get rid of the Israelites, like, raise up a new nation out of Moses, like, he's got options. Um, that God has people who are faithful to him in all the corners of the Holy Land. Like, all of the, you know, wilderness is full of people who, for some reason or another, worship God. Now, that said, we do, in fact, get, like, Balaam getting very much stalled by God here. Like, he is unable to curse the Israelites and, in fact, ends up blessing them instead. But it's noteworthy that it is the same people, like the people of Balak, and Balaam is even men mentioned again once the Israelites fail in Midian. Like, if anything, I suspect this is kind of ingenious strategy on Balak's part. That, like, okay, so clearly they can't curse the Israelites and you don't want to fight them in, like, a fair fight. So instead, let's use their Achilles heel. Let's weaken them. Instead of sending our men with swords, let's send our women and let's see if we can entice them. And this, this works like crazy. Like, immediately, as soon as the, the Israelites arrive in Shittim, we, like, we're told that they are immediately sleeping with the daughters of, of, of Moab. Like, immediately, the women of the Midianites are seducing and turning the Israelites over to their gods and their idols. To the point that Moses has to, like, step in and, you know, demand that they stop doing this. And literally, as Moses is telling them, like, you can't sleep with the daughters of Moab anymore, one of the Israelite men, like, runs into a camp with one of the daughters. And at this point, Phineas, 
and this is the first time we've really heard of Phineas, though I did point him out in the in the uh, genealogy because I know he's a big deal and he's super awesome here. Like Phineas is one of the priests, not the high priest. That's Eliezer at this point. But Phineas will get high priest treatment in his own right, if I'm not mistaken. Phineas strides into this tent where the, the Israelite man took this woman, and he stabs them both with a spear, like impales them together. Which, on the one hand, is extremely gross. On the, one, on the other hand, it is kind of meant to be really badass here. Like, Phineas is taking God very seriously at this point. Um, and this is the moral of this story to some degree. Like, as much as the Israelites completely miss the point of everything that's going on here, like, as much as they are totally violating God's rule, God specifically told them, you know, you cannot dwell with other people's women, with other people at all, because clearly you have proved to me that you are not trustworthy, that you will, in fact, idol or go to idols instead of God at the drop of a hat, like, every time God says, you know, okay, I'm going to let you conquer this city, the rules are always the same. Kill all the men, kill all the women, do not dwell with any of the people who you, you have conquered here. Because they are untrustworthy and you are untrustworthy. So immediately they come into this town, peacefully in theory, and immediately they are turning over to the other side. Moses tries to fix it. Phineas is the one who takes action. Phineas does the right thing here. As much as this seems brutal, as much as he is murdering this person, he is doing justice in the name of God. He is properly executing a criminal. He is doing just as God demanded that they do, did with the Sabbath breaker, the guy who's just picking up sticks. Why do we have to kill him, the Israelites ask? Because God says so, Moses answers, and then they do, and God rewards them. Here, the Israelites haven't even gotten to the point of, okay, what do we do about the situation? Phineas just takes initiative here. And he makes an example, both of the person who, you know, was committing the, the error in the first place, of the person who was sleeping with this Midianitish woman and who was violating the law of God, but also he makes himself an example. This is what it's supposed to look like. And this is what comes of it, if I recall. Like, they immediately start smiting the Midianites and any of the Israelites who have gone over to them. This is what you're supposed to do. Like, as much as the sons of Korah get smitten by God alone, people immediately start crying out like, oh no, I should have been on Team Korah, and God starts smiting them as well. Here we see everything goes right. Like, as much as, yes, the, the initial whoredom, as the King James has it, is, is not great, but then we do in fact have the Israelites start smiting the Midianites and that's what they're supposed to do. They're following the rules. The people are finally on the same page as God. And from this point in the story forward, it's almost all good news. And I want to stress that. Like there are kind of two turning points in this text. The first is the one that I pointed out earlier with the Sabbath breaker, where they finally stone him. They follow the rules and everything is going according to God's plan. Here is the second one. When the Israelites turn on themselves, start doing the work of killing the Midianites and anyone who has slept with them, now everything is on track. These, this is the new generation. And it is here that we are interrupted with the second census. 
The one that tells us that effectively we have almost the same exact number of people as we started with in the first census, but importantly, no one is alive who was alive during the first census, with the exception of Moses and the two that we specifically singled out, Caleb and Joshua. So besides these three people, we have somehow preserved the population intact. The number of people has stayed roughly the same, but the individual people have been completely swapped out. All of the young people have grown up. All of the old people have died off. None of the rebels have survived. This is the new generation, a generation that has been shown again and again what it's supposed to look like to be faithful to God, who have watched their fathers and grandfathers perish because they failed to honor God who has seen firsthand not just the miracles of God, but the fact that God punishes those who are unfaithful and rewards those who are faithful, now they are ready to do this. They are ready to go into the Holy Land. They are ready to follow follow God's law. They are ready to smite the enemies of Israel rather than sort of cohabitating with them. And from here on out, that's what this is going to look like. Like, yes, they do in fact smite their way through Midian and indeed conquer Midian shortly afterwards. Like, we get a lot of passages about, you know, vows and the, the um, like, daughters of Zel... Or what is that? Zelophehad. Um, we get the whole discussion of all of the feasts and the offerings that you're supposed to offer, which, on the one hand, this is, like, the weirdest try attempt for me to try and like connect the policy to the story here but on the other hand again like i said this is a major turning point this is where the second census occurs clearly we're taking a break here because this is like the end of act two now everything is in, on track for the big finale where the israelites are actually on god's point or in god's plan and are doing things god's way um and notice that like this follows up with them wiping out the midianites like, we get this long chapter in chapter 31 where the Israelites take out the Midianites, so we do, in fact, wipe out all of the enemies of Israel. We are instructed to, what to do. Like, they're told, you know, do not take any woman who was, in fact, sleep, like, do not take any woman who had slept with a Midianitish man. Instead, only the women who have not slept with anyone are you allowed to take, which we can come back around to this. I do in fact want to talk about the whole weird grossness of the conquest. Um, but at the same time, it's very much emphasized. They are successful. They do what they're supposed to do. They take out their enemies with God at their backs. They split up the spoils and they even like tithe a the decent amount to the Levites. Um, everyone does what they're supposed to here. Like they kill, which makes them unclean. So they purify themselves all good news. Um, they divide up all the spoils amongst themselves, apparently peacefully. There doesn't seem to be any reports of griping or anything. One fiftieth is given over to the Levites, which might one you might think should give us pause, because usually it's one tenth that's given over to the uh, Levites. But it's worth noting that like the fiftieth that the Levites do get to claim is probably because the Levites weren't actually engaged in the fighting in all likelihood. Remember that the, you know, battle formation of God has the Levites in the center protecting the, the temple, whereas on all other sides, it's the other various tribes who are doing the fighting. Also, it's worth noting that, like, of the, the 49 50ths that are claimed by the other tribes of Israel, A, quite neatly divide into, you know, 12 sets of four, so... You know, that's convenient. 
Um, but also that those will also get tithed back to the Levites at some point. Like, whatever, you know, offspring these cattle and sheep and goats produce will in fact get tithed to the temple at various times or even sacrificed to the temple, especially with the firstborn of each one of these animals. So this is all good news, even if it doesn't quite seem to abide by the rules at the, at the outset. Um, but God tells them what to do and they do it. That's the message here. They do what they are supposed to do. And notice that God even adapts in this situation. Like again, we get a, an interesting petition from the sons of Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Gad. Namely, hey, they happen to have a lot of cattle, like specifically cows as opposed to any of the other animals that seem to be passed around. And they are looking around at Midian, like this place that they've newly conquered, and they say to themselves, hey, you know, we could just settle here. We'd be pretty content being on this side of the Jordan River. And notice that God has some reservations about this. He's like, okay, but if you do, A, you know, all the rules apply to you. Like, you can't sleep with other people, and, like, you've got to be faithful, and, you you know, you are not exempt from all of the laws. But also, he specifically says, you know, if you come in and fight for the land of Israel, then you can enjoy this peaceably. But if you don't, you are cut off. Like, you have to participate in the conquest of Israel if you want all of the benefits that go along with it. And it seems like the tribe of Gad and the tribe of Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh are like, yeah, we're cool with that. We will take that, we will do our part. We will hold up our end of the bargain. Now, whether they do or not is going to be another matter, but let's at least leave it for now. And notice that God is cool with this. This is a violation of the plan, arguably a huge violation of the plan. This is arguably a, you know, violation of their faith. That they decide they want this instead of waiting around to get, you know, the big promised land that was promised to them. You know, you could argue that it is faithlessness that causes them to do this. But God doesn't. And it isn't presented as faithlessness here. It's presented as they make a legitimate argument. They make a fair point. They decide to pass up the blessings of the promised land in favor of this land. And God's like, okay, cool. We can do this. I can adapt as well. This is a compromise between God and his people. The people want one thing. The thing that they want is totally reasonable. It does not, in fact, violate any of God's rules. It does not, in fact, abrogate their relationship with God. This can be done. And so God does it. This is noteworthy. Like, as much as all of this, you know, book of numbers is kind of fragmentarian, it's kind of difficult to track what the structure is actually doing here. As far as understanding this book as a story about the relationship between God and his people, this is a very logical climax. Here we have God and his people, A, getting along. The people are doing what God wants them to do without any qualifications or asterisks here for the first time. But also now that they are doing what God wants, now that God is trusting them enough to, you know, conquer the territory that he has conquered and do all the things that he's set down for them to do, now God is willing to listen to them if they do in fact want to change up the plan as long as that change does not, you know, affect or violate any of God's rules. Now we have an understanding. Now we can change the plan mid, midstream on the human side as well as on God's side and not have a negative effect. 
everything just works. Now, I do want to kind of back it up a little bit now that we've got the conquest, now that the Midianites have been taken over, now that we are literally in Moab on the Jordan River and we're getting ready for the big, you know, invasion to come. But of course we have to stop and do Deuteronomy first. Um, right here, we are in fact seeing kind of the end of this story. The Israelites are on the precipice of the conquest that God has promised them. And it is just a matter of doing it at this point. They are faithful. They are ready to abide by God's commands. Or, again, so it seems. Again, read the book of Joshua. It gets a little more complicated than that. Um, but broadly speaking, this is the end of our story. We don't have any more to tell. Um, we had all the stuff leading up to the Exodus in Genesis. We had the story of the Exodus itself and the first steps into the wilderness in Exodus. Here in Numbers, we are accounting for everything that has happened since, the 40 years in the wilderness and change. And now, here we are at the end of this whole thing. Presumably the next chapter is going into the Holy Land and claiming it for ourselves. Um, but we don't read that in the Pentateuch. Because importantly, this is also where Moses is going to stop. Moses can't tell the story going forward. He will be dead because, like we said, he screwed up at, you know, the, the one well situation in Meribah, the bitter well. Um, and therefore, he's not going to get to go into the promised land. He gets to carry the Israelites to this point to help them reach the very edge of the Holy Land. Just a matter of crossing the Jordan River and going in. Like, it's emphasized in the sort of recounting of all of their travels the very last stop that they make is in Moab, just outside Jericho. And this is where we are. In Moab, just outside Jericho, Joshua is literally going to open, or the book of Joshua is literally going to open up with them crossing the Jordan River and besieging Jericho, which will miraculously fall. Um, another great Sunday school story, but not one we're going to read or talk about at any length. Um, but here I also want to backtrack and look at some of the policies we missed along the way. And kind of the big one we need to talk about is the elephant in the room, the kind of ugly situation that is hanging over us. Namely, the fact that God has at this point not just commanded the conquest of Canaan, but the extermination of Canaan. Um, and plenty of commentators and, you know, critics have argued that this is essentially genocide. Like, notice that, you know, the Israelites are welcome to basically take any girls of, you know, who are young enough that they have not been with a man, but, which is, you know, again, dodgy all by itself. Like, we definitely have some, like, pedophile questions for all of these, like, 11 and 12 year old girls who are now essentially just captives and slaves for the Israelites, um, later to be turned into concubines, presumably. But broadly speaking, we are also getting a very strict command from God. You're going to go into this place and you're going to kill everyone. Like everyone, everyone. You will destroy their altars and their idols. You will leave no man or woman alive. The only people who will survive are the women young enough to they've never known a man and have no loyalty. That is it. Like we are wiping out the population here. And on the one hand, yeah, this sounds incredibly rough. Um, it does sound like genocide. And God has, like I said, you know, taken a racist stance in this text. He has chosen the Israelites. They are his chosen people. And they will inherit their chosenness through their blood. Um, 
their race is what separates them, or is at least the marker of what separates them. On the one hand, I would be remiss not to point out that, especially in Christendom, like, race has nothing to do with whether or not you actually get saved, and it is noteworthy that even here in the text, it's been emphasized over and over again, the Jews have been selected not because of some kind of racial awesomeness, but because Abraham was faithful to God, and because they are going to be a priestly nation to the other nations. God's saving plan here is, at the end of the day, for everyone. It's just that the intermediary step along that way happens to be racial in origin, or at least an organization. Again, there's no Jewish supremacy going on here. Nobody believes that the Jews are somehow better than everybody else. Nothing in this text would suggest that. If anything, the opposite is true, that the Jews keep failing. And God has questioned whether or not these are the right people for the job multiple times. Um, but at the end of the day, we are saying that in order to protect and preserve the purity and separatedness of these people, they are going to have to wipe out their opponents to the last man. Leave no one alive. And this does sound rough. It sounds cruel. It sounds evil. Like, again... I just spent this in this past summer reading about like indigenous American philosophy and mythology and frequently lamenting how much I wish had been retained of these cultures, um, how much has been lost due to just them getting so systematically wiped out. I can't necessarily say the same about Canaan though, if only because a lot of the Canaanite stuff did survive. Like, they wrote their stuff down. We know who their gods were, partially because of the Old Testament, which is admittedly a little bit skewed, but partially because, you know, there are plenty of documents from the Hittites or the Sumerians and the Akkadians, the Babylonians, all sort of pointing to what their culture did look like. Is it a tragedy that so much of it is destroyed? Yes, I'm not going to deny that. But at the same time, quite a bit more of it survived more than many of the ancient cultures of the time. If it is tragic that the Canaanites were wiped out, then it is more tragic that we've seen many other cultures wiped out. Like, I consider it a greater tragedy that the Native Americans have not left more of their culture, more of their identity, more of their personhood. The Canaanites were not exterminated by a vicious, technologically superior force. Like, yes, it isn't a fair fight. It wasn't meant to be. God is, in fact, in charge here, and this is pretty dang one-sided. But it is also a fight that is taking place in a world where these kind of fights are happening all the time, where shifting power structures and entire cultures are annihilated on a regular basis. Like, heck, we talk about the Babylonians as though, you know, they are one cultural body, but they are, at the end of the day, the Akkadians assimilating the Sumerians by force. Um, we are seeing vestiges of one culture disappearing into the body of the other. And you look at the Greeks, you look at the Persians, this is not an uncommon occurrence. As much as it is unfair to the Canaanites, it is way more fair than it was when the Europeans showed up and gave smallpox to the Native Americans and then literally exterminated everybody who was left. That wasn't fair. But even more importantly than this is the fact that God has explained why this is the case. The Canaanites didn't have to die this way. It did not have to go down this way. But because the Israelites screwed up so badly, because God can't trust them in this place, 
because they failed to take advantage of God's generosity when the original plan was to drive these people out with, like, wasps and hornets instead of, you know, actually killing them to the last person. Because the Israelites failed to take God up on his offer, this is where we're at. As much as the extermination of the Canaanites sounds really unfair to us, sounds suspiciously like genocide, it is genocide taking place in a very genocidal world, for one thing, and it is genocide taking place not necessarily because God is mandating it, but because God can't trust his people to be anything else. He cannot trust his people around these people. He cannot trust his people to dwell and cohabitate with these people without his entire plan getting derailed. When Joshua and the Israelites do take over Canaan, they do spare a lot of them. And it is emphasized that it is for that reason that all the misery of the book of Judges, all the misery of the, the monarchy takes place. Because they fail during the conquest, like here at this moment on the edge of the Jordan River, it is all hopeful. Like the promise is, you know, about to be fulfilled. There's no reason why we should think that it will fail. And yet it does fail. And that failure echoes throughout history. The rest of the Old Testament, at least the rest of the historical passages of the Old Testament, are going to emphasize and re-emphasize that that failure causes the failures to come. And it is a direct cause and effect here. Like, it is emphasized over and over that it is because these idols survived, because this culture survived, that the Israelites keep getting tempted away from the culture that they need to protect, from the laws that God gave them, from the order and protection and blessing that God gave them. They failed. And they failed to do what God told them to do. They failed to exterminate the Canaanites the way that they were told. And while we might question God's actions on this one, we cannot question God's motivation. He's made it abundantly clear why this is the case. He's emphasized over and over again, and will emphasize again in Deuteronomy, that this is the natural consequence of the Israelites failing to follow the plan. Maybe 40 years ago, this could have been bloodless. This, both the Canaanites and the Israelites could have gotten along, at least as neighbors. But not so much here. It seems that this is the way it's going to have to go. Now, as for the other policies, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on them. We've already talked about the census. Um, there's not a whole lot to add about the offerings for the feasts. Um, the two things that I do kind of want to dwell on a little bit. First, I want to talk about the cities. Um, you'll notice that certain cities, like a number of cities based for each of the uh, people or each of the tribes of Israel are reserved for the Levites, um, which is noteworthy because, again, the Levites don't get to conquer stuff for themselves. Um, and therefore, they are sort of living on the generosity of the others, except that that generosity is divinely enforced. Um, I also want to point to the cities of refuge, though. Like, apparently we're going to have 48 cities with Levite suburbs, but we're also going to get, like, six of those cities are specifically for cities of refuge. Um, cities where people who are guilty of, like, avenging their families, killing someone, where they can go there and be protected from being revenged themselves. Um, this is complicated, but it is also pretty explicitly discussed in the last couple of chapters of Numbers. 
Um, like, obviously, if you commit in a completely, like, unprovoked murder, that is murder and warrants execution. But importantly, the executioner will be a member of the family who you have wronged in this situation. And that would naturally incline for the executioner to be themselves considered a murderer and persecuted by the family that committed the murder in the first place. As much as justice is a thing here... And the emphasis is that God is, you know, executing justice. The executioner is basically functioning as an arm of the Lord in some respect. And you might think that therefore it should end at that point. God anticipates that this is going to get messier, that there will be tricky situations where murder isn't exactly what happened, but a killing did occur. And consequently, this person needs protection before they are, you know, avenged by the family of the, the person who was killed. That's what the cities of refuge are for. Anytime death has happened and vengeance is feared, a person can retreat to these cities of refuge and be protected there. They are essentially holy cities in some respect. And they are forced to dwell there for the foreseeable future. Like, the cutoff point is as soon as the high priest dies, they're allowed to return, and they are now protected from being avenged just across the board. Like, now it, God will call it murder if somebody kills this person after the high priest has died. Um, but it is noteworthy that God is patient with people. This is not just like unilateral punishment. God forgives the people who did not commit murder, but who did cause death for one reason or another. Um, he does protect the people who cause death in one way or another, much as he protected Cain once upon a time. And notice that that is the connection that's being drawn here. Like a line to Abel is explicitly mentioned in this passage. Um, so it's worth noting that God is protecting even those who are sinners in some respect. That he is guiding them and enforcing this not just for order but for uh, these people's own good. But the other policy that I kind of want to dwell on here is the policy about the marriages of the heiresses. Um, which very much connects back to the, the whole business with the daughters of Zelophehad, or Zelophehad. Um, now, this is another example of, like, the law being in motion, God sort of adapting the laws on the fly to the needs that arise amongst the Israelites. Um, I hesitate to call it a compromise on the order of what we see with, like, Gad and Reuben and the uh, half of Manasseh, like, deciding that they're not going to live in the Holy Land after all. Like, that's a big deal, and I can't help but think that that's, you know, a major potential problem that could rise between these people and God, even though God does allow it, and even though it does kind of fall apart after a while. Um, what I'll note here is, like, the the what ends the chap the the book of numbers and what sort of like we've seen before is first we have the daughters of Zelophehad or Zelophehad um who apparently like their father died but he didn't leave any sons and God modifies the inheritance law as a consequence to include the daughters if there are no sons who are available to inherit which on the one hand Considering that we also saw a chapter in the book of Numbers about how, like, women's vows are not considered valid unless their husbands and or fathers sign off on them. Um, even if they're a widow and it's like their husband in the past signed off on it or didn't sign off on it, they're still bound. Like, as much as that reeks of misogyny and a sort of inequality between the men and women of this society, it's noteworthy to point out that, like, 
God has a more generous inheritance policy to women than, say, the Greeks do. Like, this is a big deal. Um, first, that God is, you know, giving us a policy that is more feminist in nature than most of the neighboring societies, but also that he is compassionate and listening to the problems of the women as they are reported by the daughters of Zelophehad, and that he further augments this policy when he talks about the inheritance of heiresses of going forward. Like, as much as that chapter in 36 seems kind of weird, like, okay, so... You know, the daughters have to marry inside of the tribe in this situation. Notice that this is God making his policy work under the existing policies surrounding it. Seeing as the tribes are sort of self-governing units, if in fact these daughters went off and married the men of other tribes, their power and influence would could gradually flow from one tribe to another, which is not what God wants, apparently. So... God takes the policy that he already has in place. Daughters can inherit their father's wealth if there are no sons, as is the case with Zelophehad. Um, but importantly, now that we have that policy in place, there's a new problem, namely tribes passing their wealth from one tribe to another through their, uh, un through their daughters. So God augments it again. The daughters have to marry within the tribe in order to guarantee the tribal wealth. God is adapting, in short. God's laws are changing as these new needs arise. And once again, like, like I said in Genesis and like I said with Exodus, there is always this question hanging over the Pentateuch, um, especially for modern audiences, about whether God is just, you know, planning for all of this and, like, revealing his plan piecemeal, or whether God is, in fact, like, changing his mind, adapting to the changing circumstances. And I want to stress, again, I read this as God adapting because I'm trying to read this without the theological baggage of Christianity and Ephesians and, you know, like, philosophical discussions about God's omniscience and, you know, foresight. Um, I'm reading the text as I suspect that the original audience, the uh, like Moses and his readers or, you know, listeners would have originally read it. And I take that to, to mean that God is changing here because that is like the way that it is described. Um, that is the most logical way of interpreting this. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. Again, this could just be metaphorical. This could be in some way allegorical. God isn't changing so much as he is just, you know, like fulfilling his own goodness, fulfilling his own mercy. Like he is still the good generous, loving, forgiving God that we've heard about so many times. This is just how it manifests under these changing circumstances. That, I tend to think, is the better reading here. Um, but at the very least, as far as the book of Numbers is concerned, notice that that is where we end, with not one but two major adaptations slash compromises on God's part that God now trusts his people enough to be making these alterations to the original plan with the benefit of his people in mind. When these things do not violate God's anticipations, God's expectations for his people, then God is willing to move on them. It is worth noting, though, that a lot of this is going to cause harm down the road. But... That's a conversation for another lecture series, since we're not going to be covering the rest of the history of Israel in this series. For now, we are going to move on to Deuteronomy. And I should stress, Deuteronomy is a very different animal. 
um, where all of the books that we've read so far are, at least to some degree, narrative, pushing the story of the Israelites and their move on the promised land forward. Deuteronomy is a recapitulation book. It is a summary book. It is going back over the stuff we've already talked about. Um, but that said, the whys and hows and ways in which this summary, this sort of recapitulation happens, is worth noting. Um, I suspect that my Deuteronomy lectures might be a little on the short side. I'm hoping to knock them both out in the next week or so, because otherwise things are going to get messy when my lecture uh, series is like interfering with my uh, class grading business. Um, so hopefully I'll have the first Deuteronomy lecture out by the end of the Thanksgiving break, and hopefully I'll have the second one out by the end of next week. Um, at any rate, we will look at Deuteronomy fairly closely, look at exactly what is being repeated, what the priorities are, because some of these passages are in fact really famous and really important. See what God's message, the message of the Pentateuch distilled actually looks like. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet, or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year, um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.